Amen. <clears throat> well, friends, as we uh, now approach the Word of God here this very morning from 1 John 4, um, I have a quick question to ask of us all, one that hopefully is a little thought-provoking, and it's this question. What comes to mind when you hear the word derivative? It's a fun word to say, derivative. It's not one we use very often, but derivative. For me personally, when I hear of the word, I immediately think of a concept or a thought or a construct that comes from a greater source. Uh, if you're into philosophy and into all kinds of textbook style reading, you might think of complex philosophical ideas from Plato or Socrates or uh, David Hume or John Locke or many others who have these brilliant ideas and yet the thoughts that we think after those people are in fact derivative. They are borrowed from greater thinkers than ourselves. Or to use another example, when we hear a familiar score or a piece of music and we hear it and we think, wow, that is just fantastic, but it sounds so familiar. Where did that come from? And it's not original. That piece itself, that composition is derivative of a greater source. Again, that word derivative. Well, here in 1 John 4 this very morning, we're going to come across this idea of derivation, this idea of something that comes from a much greater source. And just to kind of be sure, I also would love to illustrate that idea a little further, this idea of coming from something so much greater. Uh, to illustrate, back when I was 14 years old, uh, my family and I moved from Seattle, Washington, all the way to Lynchburg, Virginia. And needless to say, this was quite the change in scenery. <laughs> Moving from Seattle to Lynchburg, you know, in lieu of uh, the Cascade Mountains, Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, so many others within, you know, a visual distance from where we lived, there were the Blue Ridge Mountains, beautiful as they are, but yet so much smaller. <laughs> and in lieu of even, you know, the Space Needle, that was literally, literally 30 minutes away from where I lived, it was replaced with Liberty University. And as great as that was, it was quite the change in scenery. And so to help ease the transition of moving all the way across the country, my mom convinced me as a band geek that I was, uh, having played the trombone for four years already at that point in life, to not only join the band during the day, during you know, our classes and all, but to actually join the marching band of all things. And so uh, I literally, and I'm sorry to say it, band joke here, I banded together with over 150 other uh, new people around me, new friends that I would come to know over the next four years to join the marching band. And that summer, we decided to showcase, under the director's, well, direction, George Gershwin's pieces. He was the old famous musician from uh, around the early 1920s or so. And two pieces really stood out to me in particular. The pieces Rhapsody in Blue and Summertime. Speaking of summertime, I can imagine that all of us are longing for summertime right about now with the cold weather all around us. But these pieces were fantastic. And we as a marching band got to um, play these compositions, these things that were famous. Now you might not know of the tune Rhapsody in Blue if I just say the name of it, but if you've ever flown on United Airlines or seen a United Airlines commercial, I'm sure you've heard the song. Uh, I thought about singing it for you all, but I figured I wouldn't want to embarrass myself that much, just yet at least, maybe a little later <laughs> down the road. But um, it's such a common tune. 
In fact, it was one of the main songs even on the old movie Fantasia 2000. And it's, on, it's been on many commercials over the years. But uh, in light of this, <clears throat> this famous song that we had the privilege of, of playing, uh, we recognize that this song itself uh, was so much greater than what we could ever, and how it was played back then, was so much greater than what we could ever as a band of 150 young teenagers ever put forth. And when I was thinking back on this memory, I thought, you know, when we were performing in front of thousands upon thousands of complete strangers all around Virginia, we were judged in so many areas. I mean, areas such as um, the cadence and the melody and the actual formation and how we structured ourselves, how we carried our own selves, even physically speaking, and yet we were never judged in one key area, the area of originality, originality. And that is because, of course, the song that we were playing and our uh, emulation of it was derivative of something so much greater. We ourselves, as young 14 and 15 and 16-year-olds, didn't write this amazing song, Rhapsody in Blue. Rather, we were emulating it. We were sourced by another. Well, in today's passage, again, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to see this idea of derivation, something that is derived from another over and over and over again here in 1 John 4 this very morning. Now, thinking biblically speaking, you may recall that John, who was the writer of our text, was addressing a company of believers who were being challenged in their faith by competing messages. Messages that, in many ways, ran counterproductive to the gospel of grace itself. And so John addressed them, the church, here, by calling them to question from what, or better yet, from whom, these messages were coming. Where were they being derived, in other words? And so he challenged them to consider these things, to be discerning while also being trusting of the message that had been delivered to them by God himself. Discerning toward things that stood in opposition and yet trusting toward God's word. And so in light of that very same attitude that John compelled his readers to come before the text, I actually would love to invite us to have that same posture of humility this very morning. As we come before the very word of God, 1 John 4, verse 1, down to the very end of the chapter this morning. For in the same way as those early believers, God invites us also to come before his word with a spirit and a posture of humility, to hear it and to receive it as God's word given to us in love, forever faithful and forever true. And so hear then, friends, the word of God spoken over you. First John 4. The word of God says this. Beloved, do not believe <clears throat> every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. But we are from God. 
Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses Jesus, that Jesus rather is the son of God. God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with judgment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. Uh, He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the very word of God. Thanks be to him. Uh, let's, let's come before him in prayer before we dive in. <clears throat> Father, I ask that in this time <clears throat> you would use us um, to be a people who are recipients of your grace for your kingdom's sake. God, we ask that we would be people who readily receive the gospel of grace here as it's been given to us in 1 John 4. We ask that our hearts would be ready to just open wide to the truth that is here and to receive the implanted word within our own souls. God, we also ask that you would use this word as it is preached, the word concerning Christ and his salvation to reassure our hearts before you, our very God, that you have chosen us in love and that you have shown your love toward us in this very way that you gave your son to us. And even to this day, you've given us your word to minister to our hearts by the very Holy Spirit. And so we pray that the spirit would continue to be at work, not only as the word has been read here in this very moment, but as it is now delivered and expounded upon. Would you use anything that is not of your word to fall by the wayside as I deliver your word, O God? But would you use by your strength and your power that which is from you 
to be a blessing to your people in this very place. God, would you cause us to be a discerning people this very morning, discerning of your truth and of the errors that we hear in this world around us, but would you also cause us to be a trusting people, one who is marked by your grace and love. And so use this time, O oh God, to strengthen us, to enliven our faith, for we ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. <clears throat> well, church, this very morning, you probably have picked up on it by now, but we have two major points of consideration. Uh, this idea of discernment and this idea of trust. Discernment, which we'll see here in verses 1 through 6, and trust in verses 7 through 21. Here in our passage this very morning, you may have noticed as well, though, that John is compelling the church here with the following plea, to know God and to know his message. Now, the past couple of weeks, I've been reiterating this truth that we saw back in chapter 2 from verses 12 through 14, the, the passage that goes on to describe the three particular groups of people that John was writing to here in this church, whether it was Ephesus or around that area, whomever it was that he was actually speaking to and beyond, he calls them out as being three distinct groups of people within the church. Specifically speaking, the little children within the church, those who were also maybe young in the faith as little Christians, those who were also fathers and mothers in the faith, those who have much life experience and those who are well-versed in the faith itself, and also, thirdly, those who were considered young men or young women. And each one of those things, to each one of those things, was attached this notion, this truth about that people group. For even the smallest of children can understand the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And even those who have the most life experience have known God personally and have known to trust him through thick and thin. And those who were considered young men and young women in the church uh, have also known in many ways to be um, overcomers only by Christ and Christ alone. And so as we saw last Sunday, John continues to elaborate upon this idea throughout the rest of 1 John. In chapter 3, he goes into this aspect of forgiveness, which was our topic for last week, really emphasizing the fact that we are forgiven by God. And that truth was spoken in language which he even used, words like little children, little children, little children. Well, here in chapter 4, he continues that same trend, and now he's emphasizing the very fact that we are not just a forgiven people, but a knowledgeable people, people that have come to know God. And so he emphasizes this, as he will even later in chapter 5, where he talks about us being an overcoming people. So here, uh, as we continue on, we think of this truth, that we, in fact, are a knowledgeable people. In other words, we have come to know God all the more through the very testing of our faith, a faith that has withstood trials and tribulations of various kinds. And we know from Scripture that the rule of faith itself, in other words, the standard by which we can have faith in God, the way that he designed it in our uh, everyday lives is for us, at the very core of our Christian life, our relationship with God, is for us to wholly embrace 
nothing less than the whole counsel of God, the word of God. It's as the very first chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, which is our tried and true confession of what we believe as believers in Christ here at Christ's Covenant. It says this, the very first chapter, recognizing and underscoring the importance of the rule of faith. It says this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, for faith, and for life, all of that is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced or derived, if you will, from scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit, so it may seem, or by the traditions of men. In other words, there is this direct correlation between bringing glory to God, the means of our salvation, a steadfast faith in this God, and how we then live out this faith in love for one another. Every facet of the lives of every man and woman in existence, not even just believers, but unbelievers alike, every single facet about how we are to relate to God and each other is bound up in the very word of God and expressly established by scripture and is therefore purposed to be derived even from scripture when how we should live is a little confusing to us at times in specific situations. For after all, to turn to any other source for knowledge and life direction is to inevitably reject the very source of our being, God himself. Friends, I can say this with complete confidence, for we ourselves are, in fact, derivative creatures. To use that example of, you know, the music from earlier, we don't have too many original ideas ourselves. Rather, we emulate that which we've been given. But in a much greater way, we as people are, of course, beings. We are human beings created in God's image and likeness. And as simple as this sounds, we would have no existence, no life, apart from his sovereign will to create us in the first place. From the very first line of scripture, for instance, in Genesis 1 verse 1, it establishes this very fact that it was in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. And so though we are derivative creatures, though we are even especially made in his image and his likeness, we ourselves cannot sustain our own beings. We are frail. We are fickle people. We fall so often to the whims and desires of things around us and of different circumstances that are outside of our own control. For who of us, of any of us, can lengthen our own days or dictate what will come to be with the words of our own mouths? As funny as it sounds, who of us curated the special place where we were born? Or, furthermore, could ever even orchestrate or did orchestrate the specific events leading up to this very moment in time. Not one of us. In other words, God alone, our creator and our sustainer, is the author and the giver of life. And so we, at a very fundamental level, <clears throat> as Christians, confess that God alone is sovereign and that we are derivative beings, held and nourished in the palm of his own providential hand. 
And yet for as much as this is a reminder, a reminder to trust God and to trust in his plan for our lives, we are in fact called to live with discernment. For as 1 John 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now this loving command by one of the apostles himself, one of the select few whom Christ himself chose and appointed and discipled and commissioned to be um, proclaimers of the gospel, coupled this very fact with the very next line. He says this, by this you know the spirit of God. This is how you discern, in other words, truth from error. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Now, as elementary as that might sound to us, Christianity is therefore based upon nothing less than belief in Christ as the eternally begotten Son of the Father. And when you think about the entire realm of church history, every time that people within the church have ever deviated from the truth of scripture, it's always been in relation to how they view the very person and work of Jesus Christ. When you think of church history, every single major heresy that's arisen in the last 2,000 years, even during the time of John's own writing to this church, had to do with the denial of Jesus Christ for who he was. For instance, in John's own day, many false teachers were arising from within the gathered church right here, within this very church that he was writing to, saying and insisting that Jesus had not really come in the flesh. And this was in direct contrast to the witness of the multitudes who had seen Christ in the flesh and were directly ministered to uh, by him. They had even seen him in his resurrected body and his certain death upon, his, upon the cross. And yet they had also borne witness to the resurrection, Christ alive again. And so John addressed them as such, saying, no, we know this. We've seen, we've even felt his hands. We've seen the holes in his hands. He really was who he said he was, and he's alive. Well, by the third and fourth centuries A.D., The heresy of Arianism in particular arose by those who rejected orthodox or tried and true Christianity. And Arius himself and his protégés, those who followed after him, uh, taught that Jesus was not eternally begotten of the Father. That he himself was not eternal in his very being, but was rather created by God at a certain point in time prior to his coming to earth. This heresy was condemned multiple times over and over and over again. Uh, First in a large way at the Council of Nicaea in uh, 325 AD, but even then again at the Council of Constantinople in 381. And though time would fail us to go over so many more heresies regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ, we ourselves live in a culture that is questioning these very same things all over again, all around us. For instance, just in the last couple of days myself, I've heard from friends and colleagues who are familiar with Christianity and yet have decided to reject the very basis of our religion, all based upon life experience. 
all because they decided that they did not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, just as John wrote of here. And for as discouraging as this is, again, this is nothing new or novel to our own day and age. See, church, we ourselves live in an era that is marked by what has come to be known as expressive individualism. For as globalized and pluralized as this world is becoming in this era of our own human existence, we have also simultaneously chosen to exalt self over God. We've placed ourselves as the deity over our own lives within our culture. For instance, we live in an age when so many people have used platforms like social media uh, for all the good that that can do even to pose honest and real questions but in an, in an, in an inappropriate way. Uh, posing before a mass of opinions, real questions, and maybe fraudulently speaking, seeking answers from people who will simply just applaud them for standing up for their perceived truth. See, in other words, traditional ways of discovering truth or testing worldviews for believability and verifiability have in this day and age given way to an infestation of confusion upon the masses. Furthermore, we live in an age in which our own uh, derivative individualistic beliefs are esteemed over and above the tried and true source of our faith, the Holy Spirit of God himself, the one who gives belief. Um, thinking of this very idea, it's no wonder that uh, John, in expressing these ideas of doubt and faith here in 1 John 4, uh, expressly states that it is the Spirit of God who is given to believers only. For he was inspired by God to reiterate the very words of Jesus from the Gospel of John in chapter 14, where Jesus himself said these very words, the world cannot receive the Spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So friends, hear this. For though the Spirit is the one who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment according to the law of God, this universal law of God which is written upon every one of our hearts, we cannot have faith in Christ for salvation, but by the Holy Spirit producing that faith within us unless God the Father himself imparts his Holy Spirit to us in the first place and leads us to a place of knowledge and acceptance that Christ is Lord, the one who died and rose again. So in essence, even our faith in Christ and our resting upon him and the mercy that is offered to us in the gospel are themselves derivative and not belonging to us. And so when you think about it this way, we must be a people who are marked not just by a trust in God, but by also a sense of discernment. A sense of discernment because of, again, our own fickle nature, our derivative nature. If we are so easily swayed by things around us and we ourselves are dependent upon God who gives faith in the first place, we must safeguard that faith. We must safeguard it and relay everything by the Holy Scriptures to verify all things. 
So the question is this, how do we discern spiritual truth from error? Well, John answers that very question for us in verse six in 1 John four, he says this in verse six, we are from God, whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In other words, whoever receives the message of Christ as it's delivered to us in God's word, his holy, inspired, inerrant word, uh, receives it as God intended it for, for it to be received. And so we can rest upon it with assurance, knowing that we are receiving the unchanging truth. Accordingly as such, for the times that we do doubt, for the times that we do question things and we see things in this world that cause us to question our faith and our dependency upon the Holy Scripture as God's word, we would do well to remember this truth, that there is no safer place for our minds to venture when it comes to spiritual things concerning God than when these things are led by the Spirit of God in conjunction with the truth of God's word. Meaning, as we are reading the word itself, and the Spirit is imposing and, and really placing these truths upon our hearts, implanting these things, rather, um, that is when we see the beauty of Scripture for what it is. And we can rest our minds steadily upon these things. For the Spirit of the living God does not just direct us in the whole counsel of God, but in every part of life, by good and necessary consequence, as the confession said earlier. And though we are derivative beings, so easily led astray by the allures of sin here in this world itself, when our minds are fixated upon the things of Christ and his gospel, all of those competing thoughts from the world will be loosened of their stranglehold over us. They'll even be loosened of their desirability. In other words, when we consider the truthfulness of God's word and we hear thoughts that compete with it and seem so uh, opposed to the word of God, and yet we are so steeped in the word of God, these things will lose the allure that they have, the temptation to believe falsities. It's as that old hymn goes, for instance, that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus all the more, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so it leaves us, with, leaves us with this question regarding discernment. Are we a discerning people? Knowing the gospel of grace, are we a people who will be bound by um, this idea of just resting in it and testing anything that comes up against the word of God by the very word of God? Will we take up that challenge upon ourselves? Well, that leads us to uh, the last half of our passage this morning from verses 7 down through 21. And again we, move, again, we move from this idea of discernment into this idea of trust from 1 John 4, verses 7 and following. I imagine that as John was writing to this church, he himself was enamored with the glory of Christ and nothing less because of the language that he uses here in 1 John 4. And it's from this place of deep love for the same Jesus whom he had known personally during his time of following him that John could not help but encourage the church to walk in the love of Christ before others. For though we must be a discerning people in our livelihoods concerning spiritual matters, 
we too must also be a trusting people in God himself. The true chief shepherd, the overseer of our souls, the one who leads us and who guides us and who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us as orphans. Rather, as 1 John 4 here in this last half of our passage reminds us, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us as those who have come to know him. And as he abides in us and with us, our trust in him, therefore, is deepened. What a beautiful thing to think about. Last Sunday, I shared that love is uh, more than a feeling, more than a disposition, even deeper than mere lip service of devotion to another. True love, in many ways, is this loyalty that is sworn to another person, come whatever may be. And here, John emphasizes this idea of love all over again. Uh, love, as it is used here in 1 John chapter 4, is again shown to be covenantal. In other words, it is life-giving. It is a promise that is committed until the end. A promise that manifests itself even in godly living before others. This love for God. As 1 John 4 verse 8 says, anyone who does not love, or rather does not, uh, yeah, love does not know God because God is love. And love is demonstrated in this way as it goes on to say in verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Thinking of these things, what greater love could there ever be then than this? That God of very God would come for ruined sinners such as you and me. And so remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. How could the Son of God take upon himself human flesh and adorn himself with anything but the utmost glory and laud and honor? How could Jesus Christ, true God and true man, stand in our place and bear all of the covenantal obligations of the law in the place of sinners to die on their behalf. Death itself, the final wage for sin in his own body. How could he ever do that? Only by love, love for you. See, it was all for love's sake that he who was rich beyond all splendor became poor. He did it for you. So beloved, those who are loved by God, if you have received this love of God in Christ, God is with you and will abide with you through thick and through thin. As 1 John 4 verse 15 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he is God. And furthermore, it continues on to say this, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. <clears throat> to put it another way, if we are steeped in the very love of God, we cannot help but be steeped by God's own handiwork. It's almost like, to illustrate this idea, it's almost like uh, placing your favorite mixture of herbal tea leaves into a mug and watching uh, that boiled water just completely become saturated with both the aromatic scent and the herbal taste of that which was plunged deep into the water. 
So it is with the very love of God for us as believers. If we have been made to taste of the living water, Christ himself, and tend to the mercies of Christ on a regular basis, we cannot help but be saturated in the very love of God for us. To be overwhelmed by it, in other words. And it will abide with us, accordingly so. We can trust God to do this very thing for us, to enrapture us with his love when our eyes are fixed upon Jesus. When we find that life-giving kind of nectar of the gospel just plunge within our souls so deeply, it will saturate us. But my question for us is this. We might know this as believers, that we know and experience the love of God when our eyes are fixated upon our Savior and we see him as such. But what about those times when we do not see him as such and our love for God grows more dim than it ought? What about those times when we feel like our love for God is not kindled in the way that it should be? My question for us this morning is this, have you yourself experienced, maybe even recently, a time or a season in your own life, even as a believer, in which the love of God seemed to be distanced from you? I think if we are honest with ourselves, each one of us as believers, I myself included, even in recent months, can think of times when the love of God seemed to be this thing that was far off. When I myself felt a very lacking love for my God, it seemed as if God had hidden the light of his face, his countenance from me. And I'm sure you all have faced that too. But what kinds of things cause these doubts within our own souls? Oftentimes they are a direct result of sin, granted. But sometimes they are also things that are around us that are so just pervasive and disastrous and um, even just depressing, to say the least. When we see the sinfulness of the world for what it is, and we think, where? Where is the love of God in this? We have these doubts from time to time. But the good news of Scripture is that it calls us to bring these doubts before God in faith, even when we don't feel that same sense of love that we might have had for him in years gone by. And to still cling to him in faith, even when we cannot see his smiling face that seems to be so hidden during those times. For his countenance and his position toward us doesn't change, even in spite of those circumstances. And thankfully, our assurance of faith itself is not built upon such moments of doubt in our own lives. See, thankfully, our assurance of faith is rather built upon the truth of God's saving grace toward us in Christ. True, unchanging fact. Fact that he died for us and he loves us. And those two things will never change. I would venture to say that more often than not, we do arrive at these feelings of feeling out of alignment with God our Father when we are tempted, even as John says, to hate our brothers and sisters. 
to commit the sin of seemingly putting to death the people in our lives that we should be loving instead of putting off. And that is often when we feel a lesser love for God, when we also in conjunction feel a lesser love for our neighbor. The two in many ways go hand in hand, as John points out. Because hatred itself is nothing less than a a desire for something else to be put to death. How sobering a thought is that? Hatred itself is a desire for something else to be put to death. Oftentimes in scripture, like in the writings of the Apostle Paul and Romans and Galatians and elsewhere, we are called to put sin itself to death. And our attitude toward our own sinful desires, our want of conformity unto the law of God or transgression of it should be one of remorse and hatred toward the sin itself. For our sin and its abounding effects upon our lives and the lives of our loved ones is not only heinous in God's sight, but it's detrimental to a thriving relationship between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ, let alone our neighbors. Because after all, sin kills, sin destroys. It has a cancerous effect upon even the best of our relationships, the truest of our friendships, the most noble of all marriages. And sin is on a daily mission to estrange us from knowing the love of God. Please hear that. And so we do well to assess not only our knowledge of the love of God, but in these times when he might feel distanced from us, we do well to assess our love for God from time to time. I mean, if we find ourselves coming to God, coming to his word on a daily basis, begrudgingly so, out of a sense of duty and not driven by love and affection for him, why do we do it that way? Why do we come begrudgingly? If we walk before God with a sense of fear and not love, are we actually resting in his perfect love? Well, John here in 1 John 4 essentially says, no, we're not. So here again, the words from uh, verse 17 and following in 1 John, he says this, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Friends, we know this to be true of our deepest relationships, that there should be no fear between the best of friends or the best of relationships. We do not come into a conversation with those whom we count to be our most trusted confidants with a sense of fear and trepidation. That would undermine the actual depth of the friendship itself. And so it is with God. See, if we are freed from the shame of sin, if we have been given that bold access and confidence before God because of resting upon the forgiveness offered to us by Christ, then why should we ever walk before God with a feeling of guilt before him? Because that guilt, those feelings of being distanced from God because of what we've done, what we've incurred, have already had the final word of Christ's blood spoken over them. 
if we know the forgiveness of sin, if we have trusted in Christ for salvation, if we have known him to be greater than even our hearts and the deception of them, if we have known that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, why then will we ever come before our God who loves us with a spirit of shame? Well, the only answer to that question, all of those questions really, is fear. Fear would drive us to view our relationship with God in such a way for those of us who are in Christ. Fear of not being accepted by God, pretending as if he doesn't know all things. Fear of not belonging, fear of what may be. And each one of these things would be legitimate concerns before a just and a holy God, if not for the gospel of Christ. For we can indeed love God, not by anything in our own selves, but because he first loved us. For as the word of God says, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. So how deep then, how vast, how wide, how great then is the love of God toward us in Christ? Who can measure the love of God who himself is eternal and forever holy and almighty and yet would go to such great length to pursue such sinners as ourselves and bring us to his side where there is no shame or guilt standing before him. What can compare to this kindness, dear friends, this affection, this covenantal devotion that Christ has shown toward us? Truly nothing else in all the world. And so we must be a trusting people in him and discerning of all things and false, quote-unquote, saviors that come against us, deceiving our minds and making us think that there is some other form of salvation outside of Christ himself, for there is none. So as we wrap up this time in 1 John 4 this morning, my prayer for us this week as we go forth is that we would know the love of God all the more deeply, that his love is perfected in us as we come to know and believe the God who abides in us. And so as we rest in this comforting truth, may we grow in our confidence in God, knowing that he is for us and not against us, knowing that no one less than Jesus Christ himself, the righteous, stands at our side and pleads and prays over us continually. So church, know that you are loved by God. And so walk in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we are a forgiven people, we often recognize that the sense of shame from our sin, things that are resurrected in our minds from time to time, things that have come and gone, cause us to feel as if we are not right in coming before you. And again, Father, rightfully so, if not for the grace of Christ. Father, we ask that in this time, you would refresh our hearts and remind us that the guilt of sin, the weight of it, the sense of being distanced from you because of what we have done and incurred upon ourselves has been dealt with by Christ. 
and the shame, those attached feelings that attend sin. Sin not only that we have done, but sin that has been done against us, that produces shame in us. That even this shame, this fear, in other words, has no rightful place before your throne. For though you are holy and majestic and seated on high, we know that you have brought us to your side. And so Jesus, we thank you for the sweet and plentiful redemption that we have in your name. We pray this in Christ's name alone.